ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In 2018, Michelle Lee got into a rowboat in the Canary Islands, off the west coast of Africa, and then she started rowing that boat right across the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean, and she rowed it all the way to the West Indies. And when I heard about this, I was a little surprised because I didn't actually think it was possible to row a boat across the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, Christopher Columbus did it on a great big galleon with sails and a crew and everything, and it nearly killed them. But it can be done, and Michelle did it, all by herself, rowing all day, every day, sometimes even rowing at night. She did it for 68 days through the blue, green and steel-grey waters of the Atlantic Ocean, from Africa all the way to the Americas. And for this extraordinary feat, Australian Geographic gave Michelle their Adventurer of the Year Award in 2019. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Richard. How are you going? Fine, thank you. When you're not rowing across oceans, what do you normally do? Um, my, my full-time gig, I'm a remedial massage therapist and personal trainer. Right. Do you wish you could massage yourself sometimes if you're doing all this kind of hard work? Oh, yeah, but it's just not the same. I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> so this adventure I'm talking about, this happened after you turned 40. The year you turned 40, your marriage broke down. And how long had you been together? Uh, Shane and I were together for 22 years, actually, before we decided to part ways. And what kind of life had you been having with Shane? I was a very predictable, regular, easy, nine to five, Monday to Friday, kind of, you know, safe. I was an office worker in the daytime. I worked for a bank and then uh, I did weekend work at Parramatta Leagues Club behind the bar. Why were you gunning it so hard? Why working so much? Uh, Our goal was to be debt-free by the time we were 45. Right. That's an insane work schedule you were were operating under there. Did you like working in a barn? Um, It was pretty good. It became your social. You know, you're there Friday and Saturday nights and all day Sunday kind of thing. So, and it was run by pretty much family. Everyone was either brothers, sisters, cousins, husbands, wives. So it became family. Does it teach you something about human nature, working behind a bar? Oh, totally. It's very character-building working behind a bar with all of the uh, characters that you have to serve and uh, and then mix a little bit of alcohol with that. Mm -hmm. And then that will make things fire up pretty quickly. Were you working in the same area you'd grown up in? Uh, No. So I grew up in Leppington, which is Sydney southwest, and uh, grew up on acreage, five acres with horses. We had motorbikes, BMX bikes. So it was a very outdoor, um, unruly kind of life. Our our parents pretty much didn't see us all weekend. You know, from 6am, we were up and gone. We're on the horses, on the motorbikes. My sister would pack a big thing of um, sandwiches and a thing of cordial and off we'd go and they wouldn't see us till sundown. So what was the thing that made you decide to quit working at the bank and change this working around the clock life of yours, Michelle? I realised that I had come to an end of innings and um, I really wanted to follow my passion, which I had discovered whilst working at the bank, which was massage. Um, You know, every day someone would ring me on my phone and say, Michelle, can you come and fix my headache? And I'd find myself giving them a neck massage, a shoulder massage, and then they'd be so, oh man, I feel so much better. And that's when I became a remedial massage therapist. So whose idea was it for you then to go on to the Kokoda track? Uh, So where I used to train, uh, my trainer at the time, Ian, he actually threw the gauntlet and said, all right, who wants to do Kokoda? And uh, I said, I will as long as I can turn 40 on the track. So I wanted to do something significant for my birthday, something memorable other than I didn't want to be going to, you know, some pub and partying and, you know, drinking alcohol and having no recollection. So I said, yes, I'd love to as long as we can do it in August and I turn 40. So on day two of our trek, I turned 40. And were you halfway up a mountain somewhere covered in mud? Happy? Is that, is that the idea? <laughs> Pretty much, yes. And how was it for you? Was it what you thought it would be? Uh, Kokoda was the challenge that I was looking for. So there were six of us in our group that did it, and we all did it for very different reasons. Uh, one person did it because their grand- grandfather fought on the track. Um, another one did it because he was a bit of a historian. I did it personally for the challenge. I just wanted that 
physical challenge and it became so much more. So, you know, once you're out there and you're listening to the porters and they're telling you the stories of our boys out there, um, it actually became very, very emotional and uh, I walked away with a whole lot more. So you're not standing behind a glass panel saying, would you like that in 10s or 20s? Um, it, did it give you a taste for adventure doing all that, Rochelle? Totally. It really, really opened up my whole world of where I want to be. Uh, it gave me a good taste for um, what I want to create for myself. And it also made me realise that I've always had this adventure side. And, you know, when you're in the confines of marriage, that kind of just gets lost, was like, you know, this sleeping tiger that all of a sudden it's like, wow, it's, it's got to come out, man. You can't suppress <laughs> and repress that anymore, Michelle, I said to myself. Was it, was it something you'd been planning to do one day down the track once you'd paid the mortgage or something, having more adventure, do you think? Uh, definitely more travel uh, was on the list. Um, you know, Shane and I had backpacked Europe. You know, we spent nine months, months backpacking. We are in our early 20s and stuff. So I knew that I loved adventure. And I know that I can be in anywhere but here girl. I know that I can just pack my stuff up in a jiffy. I'm not tied to anything, anybody. I'm not tied to family, you know. But uh, yeah, so we knew that we wanted to travel more, but it probably wouldn't have been in this manner. So after Kokoda, you went to Thailand for a while on a solo holiday. And how did you meet a man named Tony? Uh, yeah, so Tony was just uh, coming up out of the beach and uh, as I was standing there on the steps reading the surf where the Thais had just put flags in front of a massive big rip and then I see this guy coming out in his faded red boar shorts and I thought, he's got to be an Aussie. So I just happened to say to him, hey, dude, like, seriously, is that a pretty serious rip out there? And he goes, yeah, yeah, it is. He said, the tides have no idea. You know, go way up that end of the beach. Don't go beyond your waist. It's a very strong undertow rower. Anyway, we get talking and um, then Tony discovered that I was over there for my 41st birthday. So that was my very first solo holiday, which I had promised myself I was always going to do. And I also decided that I'm going to do things differently. I'm actually going to speak to people. So traditionally, I would go away or whatever I was doing, I would avoid people. I would avoid making contact because you might actually want to talk to me. So this was a holiday where I said, you're going to do things differently. And um, there I am approaching somebody, having conversation. Next thing he discovers, it's my birthday. He says, you can't have your birthday on your own. Where are you staying? I will come and pick you up. And we'll go to a great restaurant. You wouldn't know it existed if you didn't live here. And we'll watch the sunset. So Well, that's that... very nice. Who was Tony? Who was Tony? What was he doing in Thailand at the time? Um, so Tony lives in Thailand for six months. He's retired and he lives on his boat for six months. So um, over time... We developed a close friendship and then uh, Tony invited me on his boat. You know, he said, I sail the world for six months every year and uh, this year I'm going to be in the Bahamas. Why don't you come and be crew for me? Wow. And I was like, what? How can I do that? I run a business. I'm so important. You know, all <laughs> this sort of stuff. But then when I really thought about it and my friends are nagging me saying, Michelle, you've got nothing holding you back. You don't have children. You don't have husband. You don't have debt. You don't have anything. Go. And then I couldn't think of a good enough reason not to. So I went. So you lived on a boat, what, for, for how long? For six months then? Uh, it ended up being uh, two whole seasons. So it ended up being one year, yeah. Oh, man. Living on a boat all that time. What kind of, what kind of a boat are we talking about? Is it it's a yacht? Is it a, what is it? Uh, yes, a 42-foot catamaran, a sailing uh, catamaran. And uh, I actually left the east coast of America headed for the Bahamas on a two-night sail, not even knowing if I get seasick. How was life aboard a great big boat like that? How did you adjust? Um, so life on board a boat is about preservation. It's about conservation. It's about minimalistic lifestyle, you know, downsizing. And you learn that you actually need very little in life. And, um, that suited me, I found, very, very well. And it's learning to uh, make do with what you have, you know, like provisioning. You don't just duck up to coals every five minutes when you yeah. need something. You look in the cupboard and you start pulling stuff out going, okay, well, that can go with that. You could put that with that. And you, can, and you just become very creative. And did that make you happy? Oh, totally. Oh, it was a magnificent lifestyle. Um, 
you know, once you strip yourself bare from uh, all of life's distractions and uh, the demands of and the clutter and the noise of, you know, what goes on, you remove yourself from social media, from emails, from radio, from TV, from uh, even just the, cl- the noise of just your friends and, and, you know, what's going on in their life, which you find is very repetitive. It's the same old story. It's a merry-go-round that people just don't seem to get off. And you don't realise that till you completely remove yourself from that as well. It's wonderful. I recommend it to everybody. So you did that for, what, nearly two years then? Yes, yeah, so I actually lived on the boat for a year oh. and then uh, lived oh, in Thailand for a year. So Tony and I became an item um, very early on. And um, he pretty much opened my eyes to a whole new world. Living on a yacht is one thing, Michelle. How on earth did you get the idea to row a boat across the Atlantic Ocean? Well, I'm actually not that creative. So it was during my time on board Tactical Directions with Tony that Jean off another yacht actually came by one day with a big bag of books and she said to me, here, Michelle, I want you to read this book. You'll love it. She just gave me this book called Rowing the Atlantic. Well, I read it. I thumbed through it. I kept looking at the pictures. And then next season when I went back, that book was sitting on my bunk. Of course, I read it again. I start picking everyone's brains every time I go to shore. Hey, what do you reckon about rowing across the Atlantic? Oh, you'd be crazy, they'd tell me. Every skipper would say, you know, you wouldn't get me in one of those little boats. You know, we've sailed oceans in big boats and blah, blah, blah. But it just uh, plagued me so persistently and consistently for two whole years. This trip you were reading about, it was more than just a, a rowing a boat across the Atlantic. It was a race. Tell me about this race. Yeah, so uh, back then it was only done every two years. Now it's done annually. So the the girl whose book I read, Ros Savage, she did it and uh, she went as a solo and she told a tale of everything that could go wrong did go wrong on her boat. Um, you know, systems broke down, her water maker broke, she had no sat comms, she broke every oar, she was splinting them together with gaffer tape and whatever she could, and she had a rotten time. However, the message I got so clear was she got back up every single time. And every time she got up, I'm like, yeah, you go, go. I thought, oh, I want that. And like I said, I'm not that creative. So, Two years later, there I am ringing my bestie saying, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to row across the Atlantic Ocean. So this race that happens every two years or one year or so, where does it start and where does it finish exactly? So it's called the Talisca Whiskey Atlantic Challenge and it starts in La Gomera off the coast of Spain and you row 5,000 kilometres or 3,000 oh. nautical miles across the Atlantic Ocean to finish in the Caribbean in Antigua. Right, in the Caribbean, right. Now... The ocean's a big place It's and, and slightly terrifying as well. I mean, it's not all sunny, lap-lap water. Doing this, you must know at some point you're going to hit rough weather, maybe even a storm, maybe a few storms where the boat will be sort of pitched right up and you realise what a speck you are on the face of the planet in this tiny thing. Did that frighten you or fire your imagination? I knew that I loved night sailing. I knew that I loved being on the sea at night. I had never seen Mother Nature in all her fury. I knew that the Atlantic could throw 10 and 12 metre swell at you with six metres of white water breaking over the top of you. Oh, God. (laughs) And um, I would sit there and Google the world's biggest storms in the Atlantic, hurricanes in the Atlantic, biggest ocean storms. And that's how I did my training. I had to get comfortable with looking at that and then imagining my little tiny boat down in the trough and then up on the peak. And then I would look at the distance between the waves and go, man, that's like 14 seconds. That's maybe even 20 seconds. I thought that's going to be like being on a a ride at a theme park. I love rides. How cool is this going to be? So it's about, uh, yes, being aware of what Mother Nature can do, but, um, you know, I had to look at it from a more positive uh, perspective. <laughs> so, so this competition, is, is it only for solo rowers or, or do they have teams as well? No, you can be teams. So you can be a crew of five, four, a trio, a pair or solos. In my year, there were five solos. And why did you want to go solo rather than be in a team? 
Well, initially I actually did think I'd go as a pair and I asked all of my friends who, you know, I've, I've got a couple of adventurous friends and really fit friends and I was absolutely gobsmacked that nobody wanted to come with me. So then I really? thought... Really? <laughs> really? You said, how would you like to row a boat across the Atlantic? And people went, ah, I've got something on that day. So people actually said that. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, where's your sense of fun? Oh, come on. I was like... So anyway, when I realised that none of them were going to come and they just all looked at me like I had two heads, I decided if I don't do this, I'm going to die wondering. Do you like your own company? I do love my own company and I knew that as well. So, you know, I thought that this was going to be my heaven, right? Here I am going to be out there without all of the uh, distractions of world, of first world problems and, you know, emails and being hounded on the phone, getting back to people on text messages. And I must admit that I actually find that quite overwhelming. You know, that's a part of my life, part of the first world that I could easily live without. How long does it take to row across the Atlantic from the Canary Islands to the West Indies? So we do about three miles an hour. <laughs> um, it's uh, 3,000, uh, sorry, 3,000 miles. So it took me 68 days and I rode uh, for 14 hours per day for 68 days. This is all non-stop. There's no, you're not stopping off somewhere um, like... St. Helena or something like that in the middle of the Atlantic, are you? Yeah, no, she's non-stop, yeah. Non-stop. Why did the idea of this appeal to you? Is this just the getting away or is it the challenge or both? It was the uh, opportunity to really push boundaries and to see what I was made of. You know, it was ticking a lot of boxes. Yes, I love the ocean. I have a, a real natural draw and pull to the ocean. Um, obviously living on the boat taught me a lot about, you know, it's not as scary as it seems. And that's where people's mind seems to go first is they say, oh my God, being out there in the middle of the night on your own on that tiny boat. Well, actually there's nothing more beautiful to be honest. So, um, yes, it was the challenge, pushing boundaries, really getting to know what I'm capable of. I was curious. How much ocean rowing had you done? when you put your hand up to do this, Michelle? None. I had never, ever None. put an oar in water in my life. None. None. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the first thing you have to do when you decide to enter this challenge? Um, so you pay a deposit just to get the information pack from them. Um, oh, yeah, like what kind of a de- Like, is this expensive? 800 pounds. Oh, yeah, right. Quite significant. Okay. It was, to me, that was quite sick. And I don't spend like money two grand. easy. Yeah, Australian, yeah. yeah, right. So for me, that was quite significant. And that was just to get, like, the starter information pack. And what does that tell you? Um, it tells you what to expect. It tells you if you're going to build a boat, all of the specifications that the boat must be built to. It gives you a little bit of an idea of um, your equipment list that you're going to need and the courses that you need to do prior. So I had to do a whole heap of courses. Uh, yes, I had to learn to row, minor detail. Uh, I had to build a boat. I couldn't buy one secondhand in Australia. So it made sense to build one by the time I paid for three-way shipping. It was, you know, let's just buy the plans and let's just build it. So to put, to be blunt then, this 800 quid starter pack, is that like, a, to put it bluntly, a dickhead hurdle? I mean, because anyone can say, yeah, I'm going to sail across the Atlantic, but if you, you're going to actually have to put money down to begin with. Yeah, pretty much. I, I agree with you right there. It's, it's sifting out the serious from the, you know, the jokers and the, the wannabes. How do you get hold of a boat in which to row across an ocean in? You can buy them secondhand. They're a lot for sale in the US, the UK, Europe. Um, really? Do you really want to buy a secondhand boat, secondhand boat to sail across an ocean in, or is that is I that a bad idea? I actually did. I really wanted to buy something that was tried, tested, and proven. Right. And then uh, when I realised that there were none, and you know the best option was to build it, I thought, man, it's going to be her maiden voyage, and you know I, I don't really. There's no test that you can do. There's no tensile strength test on these boats to say that it will definitely withstand a 10-metre wave coming down on top of it. 
so, can't test that. And, and did you know anything about boat building at that stage? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> never put an oar in the ocean, never build a boat. But that didn't stop you. Where, where did you go for help to build your boat then? So, um, of course, my mind just went straight to, I've got to talk to someone who's been there and done it. So I Googled Aussie's Atlantic Ocean Row and only one name came up. He lived on the Gold Coast. So I sent a text message actually via Messenger and uh, I just said, where can I get a boat from? How do I be part of this phenomenon? And I'm in Sydney, love to get in touch. If you can help me out, that'd be awesome. He pretty much sent me a message back straight away saying, love to help, email or call. So I just picked up the phone. Hey dude, have you still got your little rowboat and can I buy it? Is it for sale? And he said, um, uh, no, I've just sold it to a guy who's going to row to New Zealand. And the best thing you can do is actually just build one. And so, you know, conversations with Andrew from May till um, September, we just, we hadn't met. We just spoke extensively. I'd pick his brains all the time about, you know, how to do this, how to do that, where do I go for that? Um, you know, he had established that I really needed a rowing coach. And he also suggested that I should go and do the world record. So in, in, you know, let's build a boat, let's teach you to row properly, let's go and get a record so that you can build some validation credibility and build up a profile because he said, you're going to need sponsorship. He said, you're going to need about 200,000 to do this. So when I initially hung up from him, I was absolutely shattered and deflated. He made it sound so impossible uh, to row an ocean. You know, I walked around for a week afterwards sort of with dragging my bum on the ground going, oh, my God, who did I think I was? As if I could row an ocean. Like, seriously, what was I thinking? And then it dawned on me. I thought, you know what? He's done it. You know, we're not breaking four-minute miles here. This thing gets done every year, for God's sake. So I'm back on the phone. Hey, you know how you said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, you've already done it, man. So either you can help me or you can't. And it was almost like I had to pass a test. Right. It was almost like paying that 800 quid to Atlantic Campaigns for some information. Yeah. He had to be certain that I was serious because that takes a lot of time and energy to start to divulge and to start to mentor or coach or help somebody. So, And he had been contacted that many times by people and he, and he said they don't realise how hard it is and they fall by the wayside and I've invested so much time in them. So he said it almost is like a test. You said he encouraged you to break the world record. What world record? So the um, any world record for indoor rowing is held by Concept2 in America. And he suggested that I, in order to build validation, credibility and a profile, so that when I am asking sponsors for some cash and they say, well, who are you? I could say, I'm Michelle Lee, the fastest female in the world to row one million metres on a Concept2. I am the world record holder. So I said to him, well, what would my life look like if I committed to this? And he explained, it's going to be 13 sessions a week. You'll have that uh, rowing machine. It'll live in your living room. You will be rowing twice a day to a schedule. It will be an undulating schedule and it was based on your 2K time trial. And every six weeks we'll change the schedule so that you it's never easy and you'll be right on the verge of not enough recovery. That's how and, the program is written. And this is just to train for it? Yes. Right. Yes. And so how long did that training period last for? So my training period lasted for six months. And how, how many hours a day were you rowing? Every Sunday and every Monday were my long rows where I would row for eight hours on a Sunday. In your living room? In my living room and six hours on a Monday. And then all of my other rowing shifts were anywhere between 90 minutes and three hours. My, like you would have been getting so strong doing that. Did it feel like you were getting strong? Oh, your fitness, um, yeah, you, you, I mean, look, your fitness is outstanding by the, by the end of it. And also, um, you know, I leaned up a lot. I, rowing gets you nice and lean. Oh, yeah, but you must have been, like, physically strong enough to pull up a mallee root from the ground, I reckon, <laughs> having <laughs> done all that rowing for hours and hours on end. Well, you know what? It's actually more what it does for you mentally because rowing on an indoor rowing machine is incredibly boring. And I did it without TV, I did it without entertainment, and I did that on purpose so that I was, you know, m trying to mimic and mock what I was going to be doing across the Atlantic. Remember, I wasn't going to have Google, internet, TV, movies, all that stuff. I wasn't going to have access. So I thought, let's make this tick many, many boxes. So, you know, I was going through the physiological adaptation that had to take place because I had to become more of that stamina endurance workhorse style body as opposed to I was more of a sprint style body. So I had the physiological adaptations, 
I was going through the mental resilient training because like I said, it's so boring and everything hurts. After, you know, rowing will highlight every single weakness, every inflexibility and immobility in your body. So on the other side of rowing, I also had to do a strength and mobility program strictly around rowing movement pattern. So after these months and months of training, you had to enter this event to actually break the world record. How did you go? The uh, Rowing Australia, they actually hosted me during the week of the Australian Championships at the International Rowing Regatta Centre at Penrith. So I was surrounded by rowers. Everyone who walked past in the morning, you know, my day would start at 6am and it wouldn't finish till 10 or 10.30pm. And we had a running tally board there so that everyone could see. So it has to be done in a public um, stage you know, registers have to be signed by witnesses to say that, yes, she was here, she was doing it, blah, blah, blah. And um, and you were how old by then? 45 or 46. And you're going to break the female world record? Yeah, in this match. so five and a half days later, um, <laughs> it took almost, <laughs> almost 11 hours off the world record, wow. which was held by a German Olympic rower. Wow, 11 yeah. hours. Five and a half days later. So how many hours a day are you rowing in that? You're not rowing around 14. the clock. 14-hour days for yeah. five days. yeah. Podcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. So you'd won the world rowing record. You'd broken the female world rowing record. That gave you the credibility to go ahead. How hard was it then to complete the boat you were building in order to actually get out on the ocean in the first place, Michelle? My boat bill was a massive challenge and, um, you know, it was actually, whew, we had um, a builder whom we had to sack basically very early on. Uh, it was decided by Andrew who was, he's a very can-do man, very capable and uh, he decided that he would take my boat on and finish it. So it was pretty much in his parents' backyard in Rochdale in Queensland. And every other weekend, I would catch the plane, go up there, put on a pair of overalls and uh, spend my time doing feathering, fairing, sanding, grinding, gluing, taping, you name it. I learned the skill of boat building. And I was probably more of a hindrance than a help, truth be known. However, the time that I spent in those overalls, it was absolutely invaluable for me and for my confidence. You know, here I'm a massage therapist, I don't deal with tools, but uh, when you're in the middle of the Atlantic, when things go wrong, at least I had the confidence to give it a crack. Things did fall apart out there that I had to stick together. And I wouldn't have had the confidence to do that if I was not involved in my boat build, which also made me know my boat very well. I know it so intimately. I knew every bulkhead, every single crevice underneath my deck. I know that space. Did Andrew want to come with you on this trip? It became evident that he did. And um, when I said, no, this has always been about me, a solo row. Like, I've never been going with anyone ever since I spoke to you. It's always been just me. Our, he parted ways and uh, our relationship broke down. So he was also my partner as well. So in that moment, I lost everything. I lost my boat builder, my partner, my coach, my mentor, my go-to. He was my everything related to rowing an ocean. He was the only person I knew that had ever rowed an ocean. He's the only person I knew had ever got a world record. You name it. And then he exited very, very abruptly. And I was left with, you know, my confidence was shattered. He basically made me believe that I could not get across the ocean without him. Hence, that's why he should come with me. Um, so I then had to, you know, build myself back up again. I had to remind myself, other people do this every year. Come on, you can do this. So, you know, I then had to become very creative and resourceful on how was I going to get this boat finished. And how did you get it finished? Where did you take it? Well, I went knocking on the Hills Men's Shed door and I asked the boys what, to in take Borkham me Hills? in Borkham Hills. You went to the Borkham Hills Men's Shed? I did. And I asked <laughs> them, would they take me on as a project, me and my boat? And, um, you know, I said, I'm not asking you to do the work, but I want you to oversee it and give me the 
the guidance and the confidence to know that I'm doing it right. So they assigned a little team to me. They were so beautiful and so generous. Malcolm and Peter and, uh, you know, Jeff, a couple of the other boys. Um, yeah, they were awesome. Did you have to keep fundraising in this period too? The campaigning side of this was probably uh, just as challenging as the actual row um, because here I am asking sponsors to believe in me and they're saying, well, who are you and what have you done, you know? So that was a reason why we did the world record was so that I could say, well, I'm I'm a world record holder. So that at least they could say, well, this chick's serious. She's done something that not everybody does, you know. But then here I am also saying, I'm going to have salt sores, blisters, capsizing, system failures. There's going to be mental fatigue, physical exhaustion. Do you want to come on board with me? Was that appealing to anybody? <laughs> uh, so convincing them was not easy. And, um, you know, really my main sponsors, they were people who just wanted to see me do it. They loved the story. You know, Richard from the Keys Marina, he just loved the story so much. You know, all of my sponsors were of that manner. So you were set to go. The boat was completed. Tell me about the day you set off, off into the ocean, Michelle. The day that I set off was all kind of a bit of a blur, actually, and it seemed to come around so quickly. Um, So my father passed away the day that I had to fly out to the start line. Oh. So I received a phone call from my brother at 8 a.m. and he said, Dad's going for emergency surgery. Um, They're not holding too much hope. And then by 11 a.m. he phoned me back and said he didn't make it and I had to be on a flight at 4.40. So I had to make that decision. Am I going to go? Am I going to stay? Which would have meant I would have missed that that year for, you know, I would have had to postpone. And uh, I just heard my dad saying, do not stand over a hole in the ground crying over me. Go and do what you love. Do not stand over a hole in the ground crying over me. So what are you going to do? You have to go. I had to go. And so, you know, part of my row was almost um, in in memory of him. And, and that was what my dad stood for. He stood for doing what you love and love what you do. But it was all a bit of a blur for me. The two weeks at the start line, you know, here I am grieving, feeling guilty that I'm not there for my brother and my sister. They're going through all of the arrangements of, you know, um, the funeral, etc. And here I am living my dream. So there was all these contradicting emotions going on and, It wasn't really until day three when I finally stepped out of my cabin and I could no longer see land. I had finally lost uh, sight of shore that it really hit me. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm really doing this. Tell me about this boat. How big is it? So she's a 7.7 metre long, 2 metre wide, full carbon fibre hull, so the latest material she's been built with. Uh, empty, as an empty hull, she was less than 200 kilos, fully loaded and provisioned at the start line. She was closer to a tonne. And you had a cabin? What, how big is this cabin? So my cabin is about six foot long. I'm five foot five, five foot six. So it's longer than I am. And I could sit with my head just touching the roof. So you're, in, you're there out to sea. What was your routine like each day? Uh, my routine, which I developed on day two, seemed to stick right through to day 68. So um, things like my shower, my bath time, which Your was shower? What do you mean by your bath time? <laughs> Showering? You have a shower and bath on board your rowboat? It's very luxurious on yes. my boat, What darling? is your shower and bath? So it was a 750ml squirty bottle that I would fill up in the morning. It was black plastic. And then by 6pm, because it's been sitting in the sun on deck all day, it was nice hot water. Oh. So I had a luxurious 750ml fresh water rinse at the end of every day and always seemed to be at about 6, 6.30pm. And then I would have my dinner and then I would air dry naked in the soft basking sun, the last bit of the sun coming across my back. Oh my God, these were magical moments for me. Can you live like a virtual nudist out there on the ocean? Oh, absolutely. You could could come back with no tan lines at all. (laughs) And, and while you're out there, you're, are you rowing from dawn to dusk or beyond that? I treated it like a job. From day 10, I rowed 14 hours a day. I would row for three hours. Then I used to need to eat, so I'd get off, boil my water. That was my cooking facility. Add the water to the dehydrated meal, the bag. Wait five minutes, give it a stir, and then eat mush from bag, you know. So I used to stick to that routine and I would record it on a whiteboard because I didn't have the other crew member banging on the door saying, get out here, it's your turn, it's my turn for my break. 
I had to create something that gave me um, accountability and it was the whiteboard, yeah. And, and you mentioned there that you, you had hot board. Did you have a stove on board of some kind? Well, it's actually just a little um, camping gas stove, a little um, jet boil. So I would boil water about three times a day. And while I'm rowing, you're obsessing over what your next meal's going to be. And anyone that's done an ocean crossing, if you ask them, what are the two things you obsess over? They will tell you, number one, it is the weather, and number two, it is what the next meal's going to be. Do you, did you have any diversity of meals on oh, board? Oh, man, I had the best choices. Um, what? I had about 13 choices. So I'd be rowing saying, oh, am I going to have the green curry chicken? Am I going to have the masamad? Oh, what about spaghetti bolognese? Oh, and oh, Moroccan pork. Yeah, have the Moroccan pork with couscous. So I had so much choice. What about the mechanics of rowing in an ocean row like that? You're, you're, you're rowing these big, great big oars, right, back and forth, and you've got a keel. How are you steering while you're rowing? And so I had a rudder at the stern of my boat and my rudder had steering lines which came down the outside of the hull and then they would enter through onto my foot plate where my heel was. So when I was steering manually, I would be using my right heel just to control the rudder, make little adjustments. And then when I was having a break or when I was sleeping, I would then attach my autopilot. If, if you're going to sleep, What's to stop your rowboat just slowly drifting backwards and going backwards over all that distance you'd covered the, that previous day? The wind. <laughs> we are dictated to by the wind and the waves. The race is set so that you are going with the following wind season currents. So um, we should have had easterlies, so that means the wind behind us the whole time. So basically I'm surfing waves and I'm being pushed by wind. My boat being seven metres long, it's got a fair bit of windage. So I would set my boat on the tightest angle to the wind I possibly could and maintain as much west in my um, position as possible. Uh, and then my rudder would just make tiny little adjustments. Now, of course, if there was no wind and no waves, no point having your autopilot on. You're just sitting there. Just sitting there, just, right in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. So, and, and they're hard days when there was no, there was probably about eight days where there was not a breath of wind and there was not a ripple. Oh my God. What a magical moment to just sit there in that deafening silence and no pollution. There's absolutely, oh man, I, I sat there and I just said, oh, I'm going to remember this moment when I'm having a really crappy day, I'm just gonna bring myself back to the beauty of this moment. But they were also hard days because I had no assistance from the wind, the currents or the uh, seas. Does the ocean get glassy? Yeah, it does, yeah. Really? Oh, it's so just, can you feel like you're on a lake sometimes, yes, can totally. you? Yes, totally, I felt like I was on a pond. Oh. Yeah, and it's actually quite eerie. And then I, I discovered screaming. I just thought, I'm going to give this a go. And I just screamed at the top of my lungs. And I was like, oh, my God, how cool is that? So then it was like a daily ritual. Every day I would just say, let loose with my lungs. And it was so liberating and it was so amazing. Of course. For people who've been on a long walk, one of the things they tell you is that, the, like, the first 10 days, it's, it's hard, man. It's it's hard and you get the blisters and the soreness and the tiredness and the frustration. Then after that, you find this kind of lovely sweet spot. This You reach this place where you it's finally working for you and you're feeling like you're, you're moving downhill rather than uphill all the time. Is it like that for you rowing across the ocean? Yeah, I would say most people would agree. You find your groove, you really do. And, you know... Developing all of your little calluses and all of those little spots, they're kind of essential. You need those. You need, you know, those little um, hardened bits of excess skin over time. They end up becoming your friend. Um, and then, you know, on an ocean rowboat, you have obviously a lot of friction going on between your bottom and your seat pad. So you get a calloused bum, do you? Yeah, you get, uh, you do get like bed sore style right. things on your bottom. Yeah. Ow! And the calluses on your hands. Does that just get worse and worse? Well, you sort of find yourself, I was trying to clip mine with nail clippers, just trim them Ugh. down a little bit. Um, and then what happened towards the end was I was actually developing these um, like volcano holes inside my calluses and being in, you know, sun, sand and sea, like that environment, 
it's you're always damp, you know, so the wounds don't heal well. That's the point. Uh, and I waited too long before I actually treated them like a wound, before I gave them the respect of a wound. How do you go to the toilet on port? I mean, do you have a fully functioning porter cabin? on deck somewhere, <laughs> or do you just leap over the side and just go in the water? Because, like, no one's going to complain about you peeing in the pool, are they, Michelle? <laughs> so what do you do? Um, it's bucket and chuck it, actually, <laughs> yeah. And it ended up being my most favourite piece of equipment because it couldn't break. Right. Did you have to go over the side to get barnacles off the boat? Because that can be a real problem over, over time, can't it, with a, a boat, the kind of boat you're using? Yeah, because we go so slow and because the water is so warm, those combinations aren't great for um, the barnacles. So you do develop little crustaceans and growths on your hull, which pretty much rob you of speed. And I used to call them the speed-robbing mongrels, right. the pippies. It was evident straight away. I knew it was time to go over because I'd see my boat performance decline and she'd feel like a heavy slug. So I would have to mentally go through a process coming to terms with, you've got to go leave the safety of your deck and enter 5,000 metres of water that you cannot see the bottom. And, uh, of course, I had a very vivid imagination of what was underneath the boat that I couldn't see that was obviously waiting for me. You know, I'm thinking of sharks. And, yeah, uh, I'm thinking of sharks too, just quietly. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, I didn't have another pair of eyes on deck to say, don't oh. worry, Michelle, I'll keep watch. So anyway, I would have this little talk with myself about just getting the job done, just get in for God's sake, do it and get out. So you'd harness yourself up, put my goggles on, I'd have my scraper lanyarded to my wrist and, uh, yeah, do the old three, two, one, go, and just get in. And then it's just take a big breath. <gasps> then I would get my leg, my foot underneath the keel, which is running straight down the centre of the boat, and I would lever myself underneath, hooking my foot there to stabilise me. My other hand is hanging onto the grab line on the outside of the hull, whilst my other hand is now performing the mass, you know, the scraping action, knocking these little barnacles off. And you had to do the whole length of the boat. So there was a period of time when I did the stern and where the rudder is, where I felt like I was a mile away from having to climb out if I did happen to see that shark in the vicinity. <laughs> so that was always a big, I used to say to myself, just get the worst bit done first. So go and do the stern. And then uh, after that, it's easy, right? The Atlantic has terrible storms sometimes. Did you run into any? No, I was honest. I felt like I had uh, guardian angels looking over me the whole time. Did you um, see any in the in the distance? Yeah, I definitely saw uh, in the distance lightning, and uh, I had a squall or several squalls every day. Squalls are. You know, they bring some wind, they bring a curtain of rain, and they pretty much come and go in a jiffy. So um, sometimes I had several squalls where I'd put my weather gear on, take it off, put it on, take it off. Did you get that roller coaster ride you were talking about where, you'd, where the waves got a bit full on, got a bit high, where you'd sort of ride up to the crest of one and then zoom yeah, down the back of it? Yeah, I absolutely loved it, honestly. You know, I was watching my chart plotter with my speed and I was getting, you know, nine, ten knots down the face of a wave. It was magic. It was unreal. I mean, it lasts for seconds, but, wow, it was exhilarating. It was just like being on a ride. You know, if you're getting seven, eight, nine knots, wow. Um, and, you know, that was off like four, four and a half metre swell, which is the biggest swell that I ever saw. What <laughs> animals did you see out there? Oh, the wildlife was incredible. Uh, I got spoilt one day with, I called it the whale army, for two hours they just kept coming through and I'd see their massive shadow in the wave. Next thing, they're on the same wave that I'm on. They're just off my oar. They were heading in a very distinct direction. They were on a mission. They didn't give a damn about me. Wasn't that nice? Because you wouldn't want to make a whale grumpy. No, because no, they're bigger than they me. just go... Like that's that, right. and that's the end of you, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, they're bigger than my boat. Right. They could flip me, yeah. you know, one flick of that tail. Yeah. And uh, and then another day I came out of my cabin and it didn't matter what direction I looked, I was just surrounded by dolphins and it was a really lazy surf, like the sea was really lazy and they were just mimicking and playing with, you know, and the, I sort of thought, oh, my gosh, do they know something I don't know? Like <laughs> The thing I love about dolphins, I've been in a boat surrounded by dolphins and it's incredibly cool. They, they sort of zoom alongside you and then they just take off yeah. and then they zoom around, come back around and they go, oh, can't you do that? Do you, do you get that sort of that lovely joie de vivre, that sort of sense of joyfulness, the oh, joy of dolphins? totally, yeah, yeah. They've got an amazing energy and, you know, they would put me on such a high for days. Did you row at night in perfect darkness? 
I did, and it uh, was never my favourite thing. In fact, I had this, um, I would freak out with the clouds. I found them really freaky. Um, so, so what can you see? It, like you're getting a bit of moonlight then through the clouds and you're getting a bit of moonshine on the water and that's it? That's it, is it? That's it, yep. Is that, I, I just trying, I'm trying to picture what that's like, the quietness of that and the weirdness of that. And the the solitariness of that did that freak you out a bit? I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, now I'm, maybe it's more than the clouds. No, no, I no. love it. You yeah, like I mean, it? look, rowing at night in the clouds—that was the only thing that was freaky. Um, other than that, it's it was annoying because you can't see the uh, wave, so you can't time when to put your oar in. You know, it's actually a bit dangerous because you can crab your oar. You know, you can put it in at the wrong timing, get it caught under your rib, you know, you could break a wrist. I got thrown off my rowing chair um, because I just couldn't coordinate when to whack the oars in the water. How would you finish the day after 14 hours of rowing? I always finished with an Earl Grey, a cup of tea, and um, a Lemsip and also a pudding. So every single day without fail, <laughs> I had a pudding. You know what, Michelle? You earned that pudding. Absolutely. It was you, guilt-free. You deserved that pudding. <laughs> you know what? If I, You can have two puddings, in fact, at the end of a day like that, I think. <laughs> that must be a marvellous thing. So you've got all the equipment on board. You've got, like, uh, what, you've got a, some kind of GPS device, I'm sure. You, you, you've got uh, some kind of communications equipment. Yeah, so our boats were fully equipped with all of the latest GPS and AIS, so I could see ships, they could see me. I had a chart plotter. I had, you know, VHF radio could communicate with other boats if I saw them. I had a sat phone, which I communicated daily with Tony. So Tony, who I was uh, on the sailing yacht with. He, Tony from Thailand. Tony he's from back Thailand. Again. Right. Yeah, he's back again. So he became my DPA, my designated person ashore. So I checked in with Tony every single day. And uh, he was my weather router. He was my kick in the pants man. You know, he knew when I needed a good kick in the pants. He also knew when to say, um, maybe you should put the oars away and go and have a break. You know, there was a point where he was quite concerned about my mental health. So he says to me, you know what, Michelle, tomorrow don't even worry about rowing. Just stow and store everything on the deck. He said, and just do something nice for yourself. He said, why don't you have a swim? I said, have a swim? Are you joking? Every time I have to go overboard, I have a mental breakdown. (laughs) He copped the highs, the lows, you name it. Um, He was the perfect man for the job. A, he knew me very well. He knew my personality. He knew when to say enough's enough and when to say, get out there, quit your whinging and stop woe is me and row. And he was gold at weather routing. I trusted my life with him. And uh, at the end of that 68 days, he handed me a logbook that he maintained and updated. He got up every four hours and plotted my my, uh, position, my lat, my long, recorded it, and then he gave it to me as a little keepsake at the end. Could you sleep well on that boat? Oh, I slept like a baby. I love it. I love that lull and that rocking. And What, a full full six, seven, eight hours? No, never, ever. So my my longest sleep was one hour, and that was between the hours of 10 or 10.30 p.m., Till 5 a.m., I would get up every hour on the hour and I would step out on deck. I'd eyeball the horizon. I'd have a look around, check my chart plot. I'd make sure that my autopilot was happy. So if the wind changed angle a little bit, I would then change my boat's angle slightly to be more accommodating. Um, And then I'd go back, put my head down and be out in a jiffy. What do you remember as being some of the bigger feelings you had while you're out there all on your own? One of my most surprising was um, how I suffered with isolation because, remember, I thought that was going to be my heaven. I thought it was going to be my haven. can be for Um, a while, but then. Yeah, but day 23 is when I started to sort of realise that, oh, wow, you know, uh, and, you know, you still have like 2,000 miles to go, more than. So the isolation factor was a big challenge for me and um, I actually, because I am a massage therapist, I touch people, I missed touch so much and human kindness just being able to make you a cup of tea or have someone fill up my water bottle you know that kind of interaction is what I really missed. Tell me about arriving at the finishing line at the end of your journey in Antigua. 
So uh, on the morning of my last day on board, it was 4am, pitch black. I got up and I said to myself, I knew I had 40 miles to go. And I said, I am not spending one more night on this boat. I had my bestie, Claudie. She was waiting for me at the finish line. How happy were you to see her, see people again? After oh, it was incredible. Like it was such a relief. When I took that last stroke, I said to myself, my healing will begin at the last stroke because you're quite broken. And uh, knowing that I was going to go and get a hug from my bestie, she's there waiting for me. It was just sheer relief. Um, you know, things were breaking on my boat. Day 46, I'm gluing stuff together. My rudder housing had a crack in it. Like all these things that create so much anxiety and stress, all of a sudden it's over. You get to sleep in a bed. You don't even have to worry what the weather's doing tomorrow. Like, oh my God. So it was sheer relief. Did you have your land legs? I mean, I know it takes a while to get sea legs. Were you wobbly when you got back on land after all that time? Yeah, I was actually wobbly for about five days and um, Claudie had to guide me for those first two or three days in uh, Antigua. She literally had to guide me by the arm because I keep drifting off. I was sort of like a car that needs a wheel alignment. (laughs) Is there anticlimax after you've finished? Uh, Yes, there is. You come home and, uh, you know, all of a sudden you've got time to do anything. You know, I hadn't been to a movie for two years. I gave up and sacrificed, compromised so many things to get to the start line. Um, And then all of a sudden you can do all these things and it's... um, You know, and it makes you question what you were doing. Do you really want to do this anymore? Uh, You know, is this the life you want to live or... What do you want to do? And have you reached any conclusions? uh, Yeah, I have. I know that I've uh, found my purpose uh, through my passion of adventure, and um, which is why I'm planning another one. When you say I'm planning another one, are you talking about the Pacific Ocean this time, Rochelle? Yeah, I am. I'm you are. About oh Pacific. my god! Yeah, that's a bigger ocean. Yeah, she's <laughs> the world's biggest, world's deepest uh, ocean. Have you begun preparations for that now? Yeah, so we're refining and tweaking my boat. So I'm going to row Australian Maid again because I love her so much and we know each other so well. Uh, so we're going to uh, beef her up a little bit and uh, try and bulletproof her. I've got to step up. I've got to become better versed at fixing things. Where does this now sit in your mind, Michelle, this thing you've done out there alone in the ocean? Um, it's unfinished business. Oh, how? What do you mean? How can it still be unfinished? Yeah, because I know that I can do it better with lessons that I now have learned. I'm not a perfectionist. However, I do know that we can do it better. So I feel like I just need to do one more. Well, I wish you the very best of good fortune with this, Michelle. It's been lovely to speak with you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. True to her word, since we spoke in 2020, Michelle Lee has indeed had a go at one more. This time she took her boat to Mexico and from there rode for 240 days across the Pacific without stopping until she made land again in Port Douglas, Australia. That's 14,000 kilometres non-stop, unassisted, becoming the first woman to do so. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.